Welcome to another edition to, of Bothering the Band. Uh, I'm Ryan, and we are so honored today to have Mr. Keenan Dufty give a round of applause wherever you are in the world. He's a, a fashion mogul. He is a musician. He's an <laughs> author. His resume does not stop. We are so lucky to have him. Welcome. Thanks, Ryan. I'm glad you. I'm glad you got my my name right. You know, sometimes I get clean and dusty. So <laughs> <laughs> that's actually one of my questions: is how often your name gets messed up? All the time. Yeah. <laughs> clean and dusty. Sometimes, sometimes it's two people. It's keen and dusty, or ufty. <laughs> it depends on the, where the junk mail, the spam mail is coming from. You know. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, what do they like? What's the worst they've ever written on your Starbucks cup? Well, there are, well, I get Tina quite a lot, which wow. is not, which it doesn't, it's not like the worst. It, I don't care, you know, um, but it's, uh, I guess it's my funny accent. Maybe they, they uh, and you know, I, I thought because Kenan Thompson's such a famous actor, um, yeah. you know, and, and in, back in the old days when I was a kid, there was an actor called Keenan Wynn, who was I, like an yeah. old cowboy actor, you know, so when I was a kid, people kind of knew how, how to pronounce the name. And I think today people know because of Keenan Thompson, but obviously Starbucks employees maybe uh, uh, think I look more like a Tina than a Keenan. So there you go. <laughs> it's funny because I, I find that the, the easier names are the ones that get, get messed up more in places right. like that. Yeah. Where if you have a distinct name, those are the ones that are, are always correct. I always get Brian for some reason. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I could see that. Yeah. I, especially in a noisy place, you know, when somebody's taking an order and it's kind of, you know, they've got a lot going on. They're looking, focusing on different things. So, you know, I, I don't take, I don't care. I, I'll answer to anything. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. So I have to ask, what's your Starbucks order? You know, I don't really go to Starbucks because I don't drink coffee. Um, okay. I know they have tea, um, but I, uh, if I, uh, my favorite tea, my kind of obsession right now is turmeric and ginger. Oh, nice. Yeah. Tea's like my thing. I, I make, uh, I, I, the turmeric ginger isn't, isn't a fresh tea, but, um, it's a bag tea, but I make ginger tea myself. So I buy ginger from the Chinese grocery store and they have really big chunks of ginger and then I chop Grate it up. It? And now I just chop it up into chunks and oh, okay. And um, with nothing, you know, that's it. Hot water and, and, and no, no honey, nothing, no lemon, just, yeah. just good old ginger. And I've been putting uh, cayenne in my tea lately. That's great too, yeah. yeah. You're talking to two, uh, two avid tea drinkers. Um, I used to work at a tea house in Manhattan, so I have a wealth of knowledge of tea that I can't get rid of. <laughs> so I have to add, first love, fashion or music? First love music, absolutely, yeah. Um, it, it, you know, as a kid, that's kind of what I was really into, um, and that's what got me into looking at the way musicians dressed. Mm -hmm. um, you know, uh, it was kind of an interest in not fashion, but in style and image. Um, but it was really the music that kind of got me into that. So, um, yeah, that's music is the first love. Fashion or clothes and style and image are, are a sort of close second. Um, yeah. I figured out how to make a living from fashion though. Of course, of course. <laughs> which is fairly, which is a fairly steady living. So there you go. I, we started this because we are just, we, we love music, but we can't 
play music. So <laughs> we have to be in the world somehow. And that's how this started. Hey, listen, uh, that didn't stop Brian Eno. <laughs> uh, true. Very true. Um, there, I, I won't name names in case we can get a few people on the podcast, but there are a few musicians out there that uh, have no musicianship. Right. You know? <laughs> I'm, I'm, one of, I'm one of them. I mean, I, you know, I, I can sing out of tune and I can play guitar out of tune. So there you go. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm right there with you. Uh, but I disagree. I disagree on that. Um, I was listening to uh, a, a bunch of your songs leading up to this, just putting it on the background, trying to get focused. Um, is there a Slinky Vagabond? Is there a, is there a reason behind that name? Yeah. When I moved to the US, I needed a working visa. And okay. um, so I incorporated a company called Slinky Vagabond to sponsor me. Okay. <laughs> and the, it, came, it comes from a, the, the name comes from a Bowie song, comes from Young Americans. Oh, it's a okay. line of Young Americans. And um, this was like way back in the 90s. And then that became a brand name for my fashion uh, label in the beginning. Uh, and it also became a name that I used for uh, a musical project in the 90s. And then subsequently, again, it keeps coming back. It's like the, yeah. the zombie that won't die. The name keeps coming back. So there's, there's, there's a, you know, an attachment to me. And, and it goes back to the fact that you know, I kind of needed to, to be legal when I came to the U.S. Right. Uh, so <laughs> you start, I'm legal you, now. <laughs> so you started like your own company to sponsor you to come over? Yeah, yeah, that's yeah well, yeah. well, I was already here actually, but yeah, yeah. Um, yeah in the uh, in the good old bad old nineties when you could probably get away with those sort of moves, but not not <laughs> probably not anymore, you know. Yeah. When I, when I, when students ask me how do I get a working paper, I tell them that story, but in a don't try this at home, kids kind of way because <laughs> I don't know that it that it necessarily works now. But I I think I was meant to be here, so it worked. You know, I think. I was lucky and, and, you know, it worked out for me. Yeah. Um, well, we're lucky. We're, we're happy you're here. Uh, so did you ever have a slinky growing up? You know, I didn't. Um, it wasn't really a big toy in the UK. They were around, but it wasn't the kind of iconic toy that it is here. And then in the, when I moved here in the 90s and I started using that name, I started buying vintage ones in flea markets. And at one stage, I had this really elaborate uh, I don't know when it was made, but by the rust on it, probably in the 70s. And it was kind of like a super slinky and it had various components. You know, obviously the, the company were trying to sort of increase their marketing reach and they created different versions of it. Um, but no, I, I, and I, I have had several. I don't have one right now, but I was actually in my favorite store um, in downtown New York called the Balloon Saloon, which is a party store. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. And, and they had some slinkies and mini slinkies in there. And I was with my wife and I was saying, oh, look, and I almost bought one again because they're a good stress relief as well. <laughs> have, you, have you ever been able to successfully get them down the stairs? Yeah, oh, yeah. All the yeah. way. <laughs> uh, that's a good question. I don't remember. I don't remember. <laughs> but I've definitely had them go downstairs because we used to live in an apartment with... Uh, on the fourth, it's a fourth floor walk up and there were really steep stairs. Um, and this was again in the nineties. And I used to play around with the slinky on those stairs, but I don't remember whether it went all the way down to the bottom or not. Not sure. As you can see, um, we are award-winning journalists who ask the very hard hitting questions. They're great questions. So, far. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, this is a perfect um, 
straightforward question. If you had a dragon, what would you name her? A dragon? Well, I am a dragon, first of all. I'm, I'm born in the year of the dragon. I know. Um, uh, so, God, that's a great question. Um, probably, probably Ziggy after my favorite cat. Okay. Who, who just passed away a couple of years ago, but she was lovely. And um, she was kind of uh, the most undragon-like creature you'd ever meet. She was extremely timid. Um, but I think it could be a good tribute if I was ever lucky enough to own a, a, a living dragon. <laughs> or, even a, or even a ceramic dragon. It doesn't matter. A, a yeah. toy dragon. Maybe I go back to Balloon Saloon. They have dragons in there. I'll get one. <laughs> and you, should, you should write a children's book called Ziggy the Dragon. Ziggy the Dragon. It kind of works, doesn't it, actually? It does. Yeah. It does. Ziggy the Dragon. And yeah, uh, I, I'd buy it for my child. Um, so um, you're in New York. I'm from New York. Um, it's turned into, now it could be a drinking game, how many times I reference New York. I get in trouble a lot. However, uh, how is a subway symphony arranged, in your opinion? You, you mean my uh, project, Subway Symphony? No, the well, sound, the, the sounds of the, the sound of the, the, the yeah. sound of the subway. That's a, that's a really, <laughs> that's a really great question. Yeah. It's a, it's a multi-sensory experience. Um, so you have to include the, uh, the olfactory element as well. And it also depends on the time of year. Uh, it's pretty rich in July and August. Um, yeah. and, and I think it's also rich then because you get um, an elevated sort of stress level in the city because people are kind of heightened. So you get a lot more acting out on the subway. Um, but I think it's, there's, a, there's the rhythm section, which is the, the train wheels. Um, there's the, uh, there's the, the sort of vocal section, which are the, 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 the call out messages from the station staff. Yeah. Um, there's the, there's the uh, sort of independent screaming person on the subway as well. Then if you're at 14th Street, you get these amazing opera singers and tenors and sopranos, uh, violinists. So you get the kind of the rest of the orchestra situated there. So I would say it's those components and probably situated really well around 14th Street and 14th Street subway station, Union Square. I so that's the it. symphony hall for the, the MTA. <laughs> uh, let's record an album there at 14th Street. Um, <laughs> We can go to the L. We can go to the L platform and get like the folk musicians. That's true. Yeah. You know, we could go to, um, like the Broadway, like uh, the what is it, the one, two, three. Well, that's probably that's down on Eighth, and get some punk rockers. Yeah. But uh, great, great answer. Yeah, around the four, five, six, I often see. So there's there's often dancers. Uh, and 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 uh, dance performances happening around the four, five, six, and then also cl classical musicians. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't actually. I've seen one soprano singer there quite regularly, um, uh, and then also um, some jazz players as well. Uh, and there was a really amazing Jimi Hendrix lookalike uh, who used to be at Prince Street on the N and the R, but I haven't seen him around for a while. But he he wore the band jacket, he had the hair, he had. You know the psychedelic strat, the whole thing. Yeah, and, uh, and he was great. I mean, 
the reason why I was asking is because I don't know if you know, but I did a record called Subway Symphonies and went. Of course. Okay, because so I went around and found people on the subway, and you know this weird guy going up to people who are playing and saying, "Would you be interested in playing on a track?" And of course, some people said, "Yeah." You know, many people were like, "Oh God, who's this?" You know, and 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 even if you you know you give them a nice you know uh, uh, amount of money for their playing and, and show some appreciation, they still don't call some of them. It's like, yeah, <laughs> who's this? I, weird guy? Uh, I love that album. And um, I wanted to take it that we wanted to take a different direction that the actual sounds of the subway. You know? Yeah, no, it's great. I, I you know, I, I kind of wish in retrospect, I'd recorded some of that. I do have one track, which is the, the, uh, I recorded the train and then I used it as a rhythm track, but just the, 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 the sort of station announcers, that ambience is fantastic. Yeah. So Please cool. stand clear of the closing door. Yeah. All of that. Yeah. <laughs> um, have you ever swallowed? This is a very dumb question. Have you ever swallowed glitter or gotten glitter stuck in your eye? I've gotten glitter stuck in my eye. Yeah. Um, <laughs> many times. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Many times as a, as a, a sort of a late teenager, teenager, I was an avid uh, makeup wearer uh -huh. and, um, and still would be today if I could get away with it. But uh, yeah, many times getting uh, applying the glitter a bit too liberally, and then uh, uh, you know having a, a sort of a near miss from having to go and see an eye doctor. <laughs> Did you ever um, do any face paint like the Bowie lightning bolt? Uh, I've done it once um, uh, for a uh, Bowie tribute show okay. called Bowie Ball that used to be in New York about 10, yeah. 12 years ago. My friend is a makeup artist named named Charlie Green. And she painted it in black. And um, I wore a leopard skin jacket um, and sort of a black T-shirt. So it kind of works in black. I wanted to do kind of a, a take on it. Um, and, uh, and I did actually, I made a birthday card for myself <laughs> to invite people to a birthday party, as you do, to invite people to a birthday party years ago. And I actually scanned the, uh, the Aladdin Sane lightning bolt and put it onto a childhood photograph of myself. And, and a lot of people said, oh, that's so you were really into Bowie when you were a little kid then, you know, and I thought, uh, not really. No, it's just good Photoshop. Yeah. <laughs> uh, um, do you have any, this is a, how do I, do you have any sexy sex pistol stories? Sexy sex pistol story. Because yeah. um, the reason I ask is, you know, they're known for, you know, not the glamorous bunch you know <laughs> so only the um uh I, i've i've uh i've stayed <laughs> i've stayed with my buddy glenn matlock many times when i've been in london and i've seen him in his underwear on more than one occasion uh i also <laughs> i saw steve jones uh when we were having lunch or dinner in a chinese restaurant and i was visiting him one time and i gave him a bunch of t-shirts that i'd made especially for him and so he went to the bathroom to put them on, but he kept coming out with no shirt on, like putting the T-shirt on, but like not staying in the bathroom to actually do it, which was quite funny. Uh, so, yeah, uh, I could say I've seen Steve's nipples a few times. More, more times than... This was at a restaurant? This was in a restaurant, yeah. You know, Steve's not shy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, man. Do you have a favorite James Bond uh, the, the classic, 
uh, obviously Sean Connery. Um, I really love Daniel Craig. I thought he did an amazing job. My favorite James Bond didn't get to be James Bond. That was Idris Elba, who I, I thought would have been amazing. And I wish they had, I, I kind of wish Daniel Craig had stepped away one movie earlier and Idris had been able to do at least a couple for his age because he's kind of aged out of it now. I guess when they bring in a new Bond, they need to have at least three movies, probably five. And I thought Idris has the, uh, the gravitas and the grit, oh, yeah. um, but he also has a polish and um, he has that darkness as well. I, I don't know if you ever saw Luther, the TV series. Of course. But, you know, I, I love that. And I think, um, I think he would have been amazing. I think he would have been really amazing. And I'm kind of scared who they're going to get next because I'm why worried. Would, do you think he's too old? Is, why would Idris, he... I think Idris is he's like, I don't know how old he is now, but I think he's like mid 40s. And um, I don't think he's too old to do it now, but I, I think they could only do one movie with him probably. And then he would be too old for the character because in the books, the character's much younger, the character's in his early thirties. And, you know, it, it got ridiculous when, I mean, I wasn't a fan of Roger Moore, you know, the Living Like Die is a great movie for what it is. Um, but Roger Moore was a bit too uh, sort of Austin Powers for me. Yeah. Um, you know, and and uh, and Pierce Brosnan, I thought was okay. Um, you know, the the others have been okay, but I thought Daniel Craig was great because he had a he had that damaged quality, and Idris Elba has that too in his performances. Um, you know, and, and and he's amazing in The Wire, and he's been you know amazing in a lot of, a lot of uh, great movies. But I love him in Luther, and I think you know that just that that he's got the swagger, but he's also got the damaged. The, dark, grit, the darkness to him as well, which is there's a grittiness, which I think Bond needs. Um, otherwise, it gets very campy very quickly. Yeah. And, um, and that was what I thought was, you know, Pierce Brosnan, there was a little bit of campiness to that, which is fine. But it, it's, it, it, I don't think it's going to work in, you know, like the 21st century for it to be spoof because Austin Powers and many other movies already spoofed it. But there you go. That's my 10 cents. That's it. I mean, you put so much more intelligence than I expected into my silly question. <laughs> um, but I, I'm such a movie geek that I agree. I think Pierce Brosnan got stuck in that timeline of like 90s cheese. Yeah. GoldenEye is great. GoldenEye is great. Yeah. It's very dated. It has that 90s cheesiness on it, you know, yeah. mid 90s, where like you said, Bond should be have that darkness and I'm gonna I'm gonna start a Twitter campaign for Idris Elba again. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it had a lot. It had a lot of momentum. I think a lot of Bond fans thought that could have been good. Um, and then you know, and and Barbara Bo Broccoli had said, you know, he he certainly would have been a consideration. But I think it kind of cooled. And I'm just a little bit concerned they're going to go for somebody really young, yeah. like a like a Robert Patterson type. Yeah. who, I, I, you know, because they're going to go for the so-called millennial audience. And I, I think that that's going to mess with a lot of diehard Bond fans. So, Yeah, they're going to go for a skinny, like, brooding millennial. And uh, it's going gonna, it's gonna to lack a little bit of toughness that we're used to, I feel. Michael, like. Michael Fassbender, I think, also could be amazing. But I think he's the same situation. He's probably now in his career too old to do more than 
let's say one or possibly two movies. But yeah. that might be fine. It might be fine just to have, you know, a Bond that, that just has a couple of movies. But they tend to sign them up for like four or five movies. And then, it, you know, I, I, would, I would hate to see somebody playing Bond at my age. You know, it's sort of like, <laughs> what's going on? You know, like the, 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 somebody would, of my age would be too old to do all of that. So, you know, you've you got to, it, it's got to feel real. I mean, I know it's a fictional yeah. character, but it's got to feel substantive in some way so yeah love it i'm excited to see it we'll have to reconnect once they announce who the next bond is mm. and dissect okay. it a little bit yeah. um if aliens came to earth what do you think they'd do first leave <laughs> fair enough oh Oh, we're going to leave it right there. That's a perfect answer. <laughs> All right. I have to ask. So I read a couple interviews with you and something, this phrase stuck out to me. What the hell is a Cuban healed winkle picker? Oh, so <laughs> uh, <laughs> it's probably a term that is politically incorrect to use today. Um, it means, so it's a shoe. It's a mm-hmm. description of a shoe. A Cuban heel was... Uh, probably about uh, two and a half to three inch high heel heel on the, Mm -hmm. on the heel of the shoe and it's shaped inward. So it starts where the the, the back of the foot ends, the heel ends, and then it kind of scoops inward. Um, So it it moves to a smaller base. And then the front of the shoe, a winkle picker is the point. It's a sharp point. And it's a winkle picker is describing the, the kind of piece of wood that you would use to take a, uh, like a clam out of its shell. In England, they're called winkles. Oh, okay. <laughs> and so the, you, the, the pin that you use to take the winkle out of the shell is what was used to describe that shoe. So a Cuban-heeled winkle picker is a particular kind of boot. Uh, it's really what the Beatles wore. It's what they call beetle boots. That would oh, okay. be the, you know, the, the, the sort of broadest description of it that maybe more listeners would, would get. Um, What's the difference between that and like a mod boot? So it, for me, a mod, if, 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 if you say to me mod boot, I think of um, the uh, sort of 60s go, I think of that as a, uh, as a woman's boot, a sort of 60s go-go boot, if you like. So, oh. um, you know, just below the knee, um, more of a slightly squared toe and um, with probably like a two inch heel maybe. So not, not a high heel. Uh, but with some heel on it. And usually they were, they were like white patent leather, you know, the kind of classic mod boot. Um, now, if, if you mean a guy's mod boot, yeah. it's essentially the same type of thing, you know, like a sort of pointed toed uh, ankle length zip up boot that you would sort of slip on, um, you know, like the stones or the kinks or yeah. um, I don't know what the who wore actually. I don't remember, but certainly the Beatles wore what they call Beatle boots, but it's pretty much of the same thing. They were made by this, this uh, dance shoemaker called Anello and David in London. That's where all those bands used to go. And they used to make ballet shoes and boots and custom. Um, but they were amazingly inexpensive actually until probably, I remember buying a pair in the early eighties and they were not, I was in college. So they, you know, they weren't a lot of money. Um, now they're probably, you know, like everything custom made are probably a fortune. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, well, now that we got Cuban heeled winkle pickers out of the way, 
What, when was the last time, uh, and there's a follow-up to this, when, when was the last time you were on a catwalk? Hmm, good question. Um, uh, probably in 2004, no, 2017, uh, 2017, 2018, I was working with a fashion school uh, in Italy. I have been for the last three or four years. And um, uh, at one of their graduation shows is probably the last time I was on a catwalk, not, not myself walking on it, but actually standing yeah. on it before or after a show. Um, so that would have been the last time. Yeah, probably 2018. So three years ago. Are you still working for um, Parsons is what is it? Called? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I'm the director of my title. My official title is director of fashion programs. So I create programs for Parsons. Yeah. Oh, so exciting. When was the last time you were on a stage, music stage? Uh, oh, good question. Um, good question. It was obviously uh, before the pandemic. Mm -hmm. uh, that's a good question. Probably 2008, but it would have been 2018, maybe 2019. Yeah. So a while ago. It feels like it's so weird with this whole pandemic it feels like so, everything was really pre and post this era and it seems to have extended for so long it feels like it's now years and years even though it is 15 months but it feels like it's a lot longer yeah time is definitely taking on a different uh meaning altogether because yeah. you could have asked me what did you do last week and to me that feels like yesterday or a year ago you know yeah. I know it's bizarre. It's bizarre. What everything, the way time's been sort of warped by everything that's happened, um, you know, and I think in, in, you know, a decade, we'll look back on this era. I, I feel particularly bad for kids that are growing up in this era that are like, say, college age kids who've gone away to university and they haven't actually gone away because they're still at home working remotely, probably. Um, yeah. And they haven't had the experience of that first year in college, you know, of going wild and being away from home. and doing all the mad stuff that you should do in that first year. Oh, it's um, such an exciting you know, time. It's a great time. And it, it, it's not something that you can, that, that sort of year of being 19, 20 years old, you can't get it back again. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, um, it, it's very particular. So I do feel, you know, I do feel for, for students when I speak to them and they are, you know, sort of depressed about this time in some ways. And I really do feel for them because, you know, for me, it was such a discovery being away from home and um, being in a completely different city and meeting a whole really inspirational bunch of, of colleagues and peers. Yeah. You know, brilliant. So. And each know. year after, you know, uh, school, you, you know, into college and university, you each year is different. You're different. You grow. Yes. First year, 18 to 19 is different than 19 to 20. Yep. And uh, I, it was like you said, it was so much fun. I, I don't envy the kids that are dealing with this, you know. Yeah. Um, what's the weirdest place you've ever seen your clothes being sold or worn? That's a great question. <laughs> um, I mean, the so, you know, I I sell to some pretty interesting stores. Um, I mean, I guess the, the, probably the, the most interesting to me, in a sense, uh, was Trash and Vaudeville. 
um, okay. when that was around. Uh, and when, when we used to sell to them, especially in the, in the 2000s, because we kind of had, you know, what you might call a elevated type of product. And a lot of other fashion people would say to me, oh, I saw your clothes in Trash and Vaudeville. Why do you sell there? Uh, and I would say that was on um, like Bleecker, right? Bowery. It was, it was Saint Saint Marks. Marks. Yeah, Saint it was Saint Marks, and it was really close to Bowery. Yeah, and, yeah. Um, it it was an iconic punk rock store, and yeah. you know Ray Goodman, who was the founder of it, had been there since 1973. Lovely guy. Uh, sadly, Jimmy Webb, who passed away last year, was the kind of face of front of house of the store for many many years. Total rock and roll guy. And it was a brilliant place to, you know, it was real rock and roll. I mean, every Iggy Slash, they all would go and shop there. Debbie Harry, you know, and, and then, you know, they, they'd get Avril Lavigne and probably if it was open today, Billie Eilish, you know, like the kind of pop kids would, would be in there as well. So it was, for me, it, it was very natural. But I think for a lot of other people in fashion, they would kind of find that strange and weird. And then in terms of wearing stuff, um, I think... You know, I would always be shocked to see people in like an airport or something like that. And um, occasionally people would come up to me and say, oh, you know, I've got your T-shirt or I bought your Dr. Martin boots or whatever. Um, and that was always sort of strange because, you know, you don't expect to get that kind of uh, personal interaction with someone. Um, you know, who's sort of bought your stuff and is wearing it. You, you often don't, I mean, I'm not like a label that is on everybody's back. So it's not like the gap or something. Um, you know, you, when you actually run into someone and they're, they're wearing something of yours, it's a, it's a brilliant surprise, you know, and it's yeah. kind of, and they usually, you know, uh, I've never had anyone say, oh, I bought your, this jacket and it fell apart. You know, <laughs> what are you doing? You know, so it's, usually, <laughs> <laughs> it's usually positive stuff. Uh, and your stuff is so distinct and more uh, closer to uh, artwork. So I'm, I'm assuming it's much more personal and uh, close to the heart when you see it out in the world. It, it is. And it's funny with social media as well. Um, there's a, a, a guy that I've become friends with who's in Texas, his name's Brian Walker. And he's the probably the preeminent collector of Dr. Martin's shoes, certainly in North America. And he's posted pictures of, these rooms that he has where they're just filled with every iteration of every collectible Dr. Martin shoe. And he has all of the shoes that I did as a collaboration with Dr. Martin. He has sneakers that we did with Reebok. And, and he just messaged me the other day through Facebook. And he said, I've got this like personal part of my closet, which is all of Keenan Dufty stuff. And I've got your music and your book. And, you know, it's so endearing when people do that, because I think when you're a creative person, you're operating quite often in isolation, yeah. you know, and you don't really know, you know, you sort of, you, you I do want to connect with people and interact with people, um, you know, and I actually do want to hear from people if they, if my jacket fell apart, you know, cause I, I want to take care of it and, and, you know, be um, responsible about it. But generally um, people are super positive and uh, you know, it's always a thrill and I'm always grateful for it. Oh, that's fantastic. We got to find the doc. Well, I got to ask the doc Martin guy to find me. The Doc Martin collaboration with Pendleton that they did. I'm sure he has it. I'm sure he has <laughs> it. It's like he has, it seems to have every shoe. I know Dr. Martin are, are kind of working with him too, because he's almost like an archivist for them. Yeah. Yeah, it's brilliant. Cool. Um, 
So another follow-up, what, where's the weirdest or, or strangest place you've heard your music being played? That's a good question. Um, the weirdest place. Or not even weird, a surprise or, you know, like you could be like a Starbucks or something. You know? I think, I, I think um, well, I think so. My mom and dad tell me this great story. Uh, so it's not it's not um, from me hearing the music, but when I first started making music in the 80s, I did a session for uh, a, a radio DJ called Janice Long, who was uh, one of the first female DJs in, in BBC Radio. And she was like a really big supporter. And she had us do a four song session where you go into Maid of Ale Studios in London and you put down four tracks and they're played exclusively on that radio station. And my mom and dad were moving house. Uh, I'd, I'd already left home by then. I was living in London and they were moving house. And as they were, they had all of their furniture packed into their van and they were driving to where they were then going to live. The radio uh, broadcast was happening with the session played live. And they happened to have the, the you know, it was like a seven o'clock show or something in the evening. And they happened to have the radio switched on. And, and Janice Long said, and next week got Keenan Duffy with the first of four songs in this session. And my mom and dad said they listened to them all on the journey to where they were moving to. And it was kind of, you know, very um, synchronous moment, you know, like yeah. a, an amazing synchronous moment. So I, I guess that's weird because of the syn synchronicity of it. Absolutely. Uh, and I actually didn't hear it because I didn't have a uh, radio, <laughs> um, but I knew it was on, you know, but um, uh, so they heard it. And then, then they called me with a, obviously landline because in those days um, and they when they reached where they were living and they called me and they said, we heard you on the radio. It was so exciting. So that's probably the, the best answer I could give to that question. Oh, I can't. That must have been so magical for them because that generation, the radio was so important. You know, so that's you made it, you know. Like yeah, exactly. Yeah. It was kind of an affirmation of, um, you know, yeah. uh, you know, I mean, I think creativity is very abstract. And for anybody that does something in, in the creative realm, you know, especially family are always concerned, like, how are you going to make a living doing this? How are you going to support yourself? Because it's very it's not as tangible as other careers, you know. Yeah. Um, and so to, to have something like that, you know, to walk into a store and see you know, uh, a family member's clothes hanging there or hear something on the radio or see a piece of art in a gallery. I think it, it becomes real for people then. And they say, oh, okay, but this is actually, this is it, you know? And I don't think it has to be that either. I, I do believe, I think everybody has creativity and it's great to express that and continue to express that throughout your life. I don't think anybody should ever stop doing that because we all draw when we're kids, right? And we make stuff and at some point somebody says, oh, now you got to, little Jenny or Johnny, you've got to grow up and get real. But I don't agree with that. I think it's great to have that release emotionally and spiritually for a person to be able to just keep doing, doing stuff, you know, without any judgment and without any pressure. Even self-judgment too, because yeah. I, so I, my first love and I'm a poet and imagine telling your folks that that's what I wanted to do, you know? And I also teach poetry. And the main thing I try to get out first is, is um that self-judgment where you're writing and you're already judging each line sure. it's like don't, don't worry about it just keep going or sure. painting and you're before you're even remotely done you're judge you're like ah this sucks and you're that self-sabotage judgment essentially yeah yeah it, it's yeah. and and i think it is partly societal because um you know it it, it, ha it happens to a degree in education uh yeah. you know when you know when you're a kid in school 
you're kind of um, streamed towards things that you're quote unquote good at. Um, and, uh, you know, it may be that, um, you know, you, you're particularly good at math, but you also love poetry. Yeah. But then the school's kind of like, well, you know, you, you get more further in your career with, with math. I mean, who's to say? But they might think that and push you towards that stream. And, and then, you know, you're, you're guided away from something that actually you're best at what you love doing, I believe. Right. You're best at what you love doing and you're most fulfilled at doing that. So, you know, if, um, I mean, I love as a poet, I mean, I don't know if you're familiar with John Cooper Clark. He's like a- Of course. Yeah. So, um, I mean, somebody, you know, in school, obviously I studied in high school, I studied poetry, but, mm -hmm. you know, John Cooper Clark was like, I mean, fuck this guy, a punk rock poet. You know, yeah. he was he, social commentary, funny, observational, exactly up to the minute, um, like really like right, very present right there and then. And that was that was amazing, an amazing lesson in high school that I got from somebody who wasn't in my, you know, it wasn't part of my syllabus. Yeah. You know? So um, and totally inspirational. So I think and, and he's somebody who spent a lifetime doing something so, so supposedly on the fringes. Yet today he's an honorary doctorate. He's yeah. you know one of the greatest living English treasures. You know, and, and and you know, forty or fifty years ago, his family might have been saying to him, "When are you going to get a proper job?" You <laughs> know. Oh yeah, I my like uh, I remember my family telling my family, "Oh, this is what I want to do. I write poetry," and then started it started publishing, and my family being like, "It doesn't rhyme," and I'm like, "Yeah." It's not really supposed to. And in the same vein, like the same regard, I didn't like writing or reading when I was younger. And it wasn't until I, I discovered, like you said, outside of that syllabus curriculum, other voices that I liked. And that's where I went. Right. Totally right. left field. So yeah. 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 Do you find that in your teach? Like, so do you teach at all at Parsons or just design the curriculum? So I, I don't teach, uh, I, I teach uh, in a limited way now. I, I used to be the director of a program which I created and I taught extensively in that. Um, I shifted into a slightly different role at the beginning of this year, which is to create uh, uh, curriculum and syllabi um, and courses for what they call continuing professional education. So mm -hmm. it's aimed at um, post postgraduate studies and professionals. Um, but I do love teaching and I love working with, with students. I particularly like master's level students okay. um, because they kind of got it a little bit more figured out and, and they sort of have a trajectory that they, they may be following, you know, so they may have a kind of career path that they're already on. Um, and I do enjoy that because I like helping them to figure out how to build a career out of what they love doing, um, you know, and, and, and sort of, finding that that road but it always goes back to what do they want to do and then okay how do we figure out how to get this to happen how to how to make a learning experience that's fulfilling mm -hmm. for them and fun and engaging um and also to then have a platform from which they can you know actually be in the in the world as a fashion professional um, yeah. you know and, and and actually and make a living from it and be happy doing it you know that's mainly that's what i that's my objective that i i think that's super fantastic because it's a practical uh, like view of art art making art your career and actually like okay you love it you want to do it forever here's how you do it forever you know 
Yeah, it's very Warhol. It's very Warhol because you know I, I always thought Andy Warhol was brilliant from that perspective. He wasn't afraid to bring creativity and commerce together and find a way to sort of make it um, make it work for him and actually to have a, a really amazing social commentary. Uh, even though he pretended it was like nothing, but you know he was actually really making a tremendous comment about society. Yeah, um, you know, so yeah. He was good at tricking us to look inside of ourselves. That's for sure. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, if you could dress one person, live or dead, that you haven't already, who would it be and why? Well, it would be William Burroughs. Great oh, um, answer. But I, I could never dress him better than he dresses himself. <laughs> so um, Binary? So I don't know. I... I, I <laughs> I don't know what I would have him wear other than uh, go into his own closet and maybe style his clothes into a, into a look for him. But it would end up being what he, you know, he just is so iconic. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's sort of, it's hard to say in a way that I would, I would dress William Burroughs because I actually, I, 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 I couldn't do better than he already did. Uh, <laughs> you know, he, he was, so effortlessly stylish um and that i think is that's what i really love that it's beyond fashion fashion uh fashion is very trivial and it's very trend driven style is something that one creates for oneself and um you know i see people on the street who are uh, incredibly stylish and look so much better than anything in fashion today because they have an effortlessness they are not overthinking it they're just doing it and um so i, I think you know that's why it would my answer is burrows but it would be hard to figure out what i put him in i certainly wouldn't put him in a punk rock t-shirt or anything like that i think it would yeah. <laughs> oh that was you're you're talking to the right people that was a great answer i love burrows um about a, 10 years ago i was in um lawrence kansas and i'm i was i was teaching actually and I made this intern at the University of Kansas drive me to his birth home. Right. And it was just a nondescript house. People were living there. There was like toys in the front yard. And I'm outside. And this is 10 years. So I don't think I even had a camera phone. Um, I just like got out of the car and took it in for a second and then got the hell out of there. You know, um, love Burroughs, love Junkie, love um, Naked Lunch. It's a tough one. My, my wife gave me a, uh, a poster uh, as a Christmas gift about five or six years ago. And it's, a, it's from an event called Final Academy, which took place at Brick, in Brixton in London in the early 80s. And it's signed by John Giorno, Genesis Peorage, and Burroughs. Uh, but Burroughs' signature, since I've had it, and I have it hanging in a darkened place in the house, it's faded away. And it's so perfect because he, he used to be called the 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 arm invisible invisible you know the invisible yeah. man and he's even he's even disappearing from that poster <laughs> it's oh, so wow. it's so burrows like you couldn't you know and, and my wife is like oh i'm so angry that i got that poster for you and now his name's almost gone and i'm like yeah but isn't that brilliant <laughs> yeah it's spot on burrows i love going on youtube and listening to his voice read that's a very because his voice is so it's gravel and I love it. Yeah. yeah. Good answer. Wow. Um, so I have, to, this is a hot debate. 
Who do you think invented punk rock? This is tough. For William Burroughs, probably <laughs> William Burroughs. <laughs> well, can't argue with that. I mean, look, if you, if you, um, he's on the cover of Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. Um, he, there's the band Soft Machine. Uh, there's, uh, there's Steely Dan. Um, you know, then I know they're not punk rock, uh, but Patti Smith, for example, wouldn't really. Um, uh, you know, was extremely influenced by Burroughs. Uh, Throbbing Gristle wouldn't really have existed in that incarnation. Genesis Peerage was archiving Burroughs' work. Um, you know, all of that, the cut-up technique that Bowie used, so many punk bands inadvertently used that idea, um, rejecting all of society, you know, uh, I think, um, you know, that's certainly a Burroughsian uh, approach. I think you wouldn't have gotten the this the CBGB scene and the New York scene um, in the same way without his influence. And he was there. He was he was in the bunker on the Bowery at the time, you know. So um, I, I I would put my money on Burroughs uh, um, uh, because I think without that, without him, you know, he the Sex Pistols wrote "God Save the Queen," and in in response, Bur Burroughs wrote "Bugger the Queen," you know. So he actually <laughs> went further than the Sex Pistols. So, um, you know, as a, as, a, as a letter and as an essay, um, I think, you know, the, the style of the cut-up technique, which is, is, is um, Brian Geisen's uh, invention, as Burroughs says, um, so much of that was so prevalent in punks. So, you know, I think between those two, um, you know, they, they kind of invented a counterculture as we know it um, from the beatniks through until the present day, I mean, cutting, you know, the, the, what is the internet if not a massive cut-up? You know, what yeah. is social media if not a massive cut-up? So, you know, I, I, for me, that's where I would put my money. And also, like, stream of, like, about the internet with Burroughs, like, that stream of consciousness, naked lunch yeah. style, write sure. what you think immediately. That's all social media. Sure. Um, I Not to toot your own horn, but here we go. That answer is why we do this because you know you could have been like the sex pistols in L in london the velvet underground in new york and that was the answer so the fact that you went that way man love it um you should see my i have a whole thing of notes while you're talking i'm right <laughs> Oh man, um, I've got I've got more and more rubbish. Just <laughs> I can keep spouting the rubbish. Oh <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, we have a couple more uh, dumb questions, so we're gonna keep going. Uh, do you have a go-to or favorite sparkling water? I don't actually know. I don't really drink sparkling water, uh, to be honest. I drink um, I, I I use a brighter or Brita water filter. Okay. Um, and I drink, I'm drinking water right now, just clear water. Usually I throw like a lemon in it or something or a bit of ginger. Um, but I don't really, no, I don't really drink sparkling water. No. Well, we do. So good for you. <laughs> well, no, I um, tell me if I'm wrong. And this is just the Eric, the idiot American. Isn't that a, uh, do most Brits go for sparkling water? 
Well, I, I think, you know, it was very much a, a kind of a, a, a sort of continental European um, okay. uh, uh, creation, you know, with Perrier, for example, mm-hmm. um, from, you know, com- coming from France and Italy. I mean, when I'm in Italy, actually, I must say, I do occasionally drink a sparkling water uh, with, a, with a cup of coffee because okay. it's just the way the, you know, the way Italians serve coffee is like they serve you a coffee, they give you water with it, you know, and often uh, it could be a sparkling water, for example. Um, so I think, you know, France, Italy, um, probably uh, are the originators of sparkling water. I don't know. I mean, the first time I heard of sparkling water was Perrier and it was yeah. in the 80s because the, there was a place in Soho that was called the Soho. Soho was like a red light district and, and uh, really super sleazy, super dodgy, but great. Um, it was where all the theatres were. And it was where my college, where I went to college, was. So my window where I, where I used to sit was on the street level and it faced out onto a street where there were, you know, brothels, a very amazing French restaurant. And so you get like suddenly Terence Stamp walking past the window or John Hurt or who were in a, a play or something. And then one day around the corner, this really fancy brasserie opened called Soho Brasserie. And we were all like, what? And we, we went in there and they were like, no, you can't come in, <laughs> you know, go away. And, and we could see on the bar all of these green bottles. And we're like, what's that? It's, it, oh, it's Perrier. Perrier, yeah. what's that? It's water. Water in a bottle? Yeah. And, <laughs> and it's like, it's two pounds a glass or whatever. What, you have to buy it? <laughs> yeah. Doesn't it just come out of the tap for free, you know? So <laughs> um, it's, you know, 30 odd years ago, I guess. It's uh, it, that French phenomenon kind of took hold globally. Do, have you... Do you, you have to know this movie after hours yeah of course yeah 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 that's that's when you started talking soho like that that's where my mind goes is to after hours yeah and and actually you know when i first so i first moved to new york my wife lived uh in this brilliant building on prince street between crosby and lafayette and it's a little house mm-hmm. it was built by woodrow wilson for his daughter and um, she, she'd been living there for a while. It was like a crumbly, falling down house. And her upstairs neighbor was uh, Harmony Corrine. Oh, yeah. And, and Chloe Seventy. And it was when they were, they, he'd just made kids. Wow. And um, uh, it was totally after hours. So at night, her door was completely covered in graffiti. You didn't know that people lived there. And um, at night, the whole neighborhood was just completely dark exactly like after hours so even in the 90s when when i first moved to new york it was still kind of had that 80s vibe it was still like a bit you know you didn't quite know what was going to happen yeah a bit sketchy for those of you listening who don't know after hours it's an underrated scorsese film that's fantastic go watch it for a little glimpse of soho uh back in the day um since we talked about burroughs what's the last book you read um, I am just reading uh, again because I read it when I bought it when it came out in 2014. I'm reading. Uh, I, I'm going to get these the wrong way around, but I think it's uh, boys, 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 music, music. No, it's clothes, 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 music, music, music. Boys, boys, boys by Biv Albertine, who okay. was a guitar player in the Slits. And mm-hmm. um, I uh, watched a, uh, a TV interview with her the other day. She has a, a, another book that was out recently. And so I pulled that out to read again um, because there was some stuff in it that I, I, I'd forgotten that she talked about. And so I started rereading it. Um, and, and to be completely cliched, 
yesterday I took down, I have a very old copy of On the Road and I took it down from the shelf and the, and the it was a, it's a uh, paperback cover and it's probably from like the seventies or whatever. And the cover came away from the spine of the book. And so I, I was kind of sort of like gluing it back together very, very carefully with rubber bands and, and, and uh, Elmer's glue um, with the intent of actually rereading that as well. Yeah. Um, but the last new book I, I read was a book called um, uh, Women I've Undressed by Ori Kelly, who is um, the famous Hollywood costume designer who was allegedly Cary Grant's uh, partner. And um, he designed costumes for so many of those like golden era of Hollywood movies. And he was mm -hmm. an Australian guy. He was... Um, uh, had an amazing life story, came to New York, kind of fell into this costume making industry, moved to Hollywood and became, you know, one of the, the biggest names in, in Hollywood movie costuming. Uh, and I, I got his book about probably a, a month ago or so. And I read that it's, it's huge. It's like a, a major tome and it's full of photography and stuff as well. So that's the last relatively new book that I bought. So you can see pretty much, biographical stuff is what i'm into biographical mm -hmm. and beats <laughs> yeah that's great very similar tastes i have a giant uh kerouac tattoo on my ribs um abby is a huge fan of the dharma bums so you're you, again you're you're in good company with us um I, i'm i know the next books i'm gonna read because i just wrote these down um <laughs> Very, very dumb question. True or false? Coldplay sucks. I, I, my gut reaction was to say true. Yeah. Um, because, but I've never really listened to them, to be honest with you. Um, the only time at, at the end of Shaun of the Dead, the movie Shaun of the Dead, they have a spoof like spot where there's daytime television and, um, and they have a cutaway to Chris Martin on a TV show saying he's doing like a, you know, save the zombies sort of charity event. Yeah. And it made me think at that time, this is a lot, that movie's an old movie, but it made me think he does have a sense of humor about himself. Mm -hmm. um, so he can't be all bad, but yeah, I kind of think this, they probably suck. <laughs> if I ever listened to them, they'd probably suck. I like your, I agree with you. First instinct is suck, but then you, you start to think about it and you're like, yeah, they're probably not so bad. I'm not going to run out and buy a record, but yeah. No, uh, Gallagher said they were music for bedwetters at one stage, <laughs> which I thought was a brilliant quote. Uh, and then, and then more recently he sort of said, oh, well, Chris Martin's all right. He's a nice bloke. Yeah. Um, okay. Um, Donna Karen or Diane von Furstenberg. I would probably say Diane von Furstenberg because of her sort of iconic Studio 54 status. Mm -hmm. um, uh, I've met both of them. Uh, they're both uh, big personalities, um, very successful designers, uh, um, and very iconic as well in their own right. So, uh, you know, I have tremendous for their, their, their styles are not an, an aesthetic that is my aesthetic but I definitely respect them both as designers and as creative people. But I think, you know, D Diane for me, or, or Dion, as, as she told me is the correct pronunciation. Uh, <laughs> Dion uh, 
because of the Studio 54 association, I, I, I do really like that whole aspect. Um, and I think it's kind of that Warholian moment, which uh, appeals to me. <laughs> um, do you wear Crocs? No. That's the correct answer. Well, okay. So what's, what's next for, for you? This is your moment. Plug whatever you want to plug or just anything you're working on. No, we just we just had the the record that you know I did with my buddy uh, Fabio Fabri, who I work with um, as a sort of musical writing and, and recording partner, and um, we made an album under the Stinky Vagabond name, which is called King Boy Vandals, mm-hmm. and uh, that's an anagram of Slinky Vagabond. Yeah, um, it was either that or Sly Blonde Vagina. <laughs> uh, so I kind of thought King Boy Vandals was a little bit more um, amenable. And um, that's your uh, next. What's that? That's your next album. The next album, yeah. We were trying to think of an anagram for the next album, and and we're kind of out of them. So we're going to have to actually think of a title. We can't be lazy. <laughs> <laughs> um, but we already started recording that. We did. Uh, we've done about three or four songs already, um, and uh, you know we've got some other guests playing on it, as, as we have on this one on the, the current record got Major, who's like a, a, a acquaintance of mine who I've known for a while. Um, Dave Formula from Magazine, um, Richard uh, Fortis from Guns N' Roses. So it's kind of mm. a good group of people. And they're all people that I know either well or reasonably well. Um, and um, they really add to the, the scope of the record. Um, and, you know, we kind of approached it in a very collaborative way. I really do like the collaborative process. So uh, working yeah. with, you know, with other people that bring in their ideas uh, I, I think it's really, you know, it's, it's a great, it's a great thing. It's kind of what you do in fashion, you know, as a designer, you, you think the designer walks out at the end of the runway show and they've done all the work and they haven't at all. It's, it's a totally a team effort. Um, I, tr- I once tried to get my team to come out on the runway with me, the hairstylist, the makeup artist, the stylist and so on and so forth. And they wouldn't do it. They were, they were just like, no, no, it's gotta be, it's gotta be, you know, well, <laughs> how about just once we do it? We all go out. Yeah. But, um, but yeah, it's a team effort. So, Well, uh, everyone, please go listen to King Boy Vandals by Slinky Vagabond. Follow Keenan Dufty on Instagram. It's just Keenan Dufty. Um, yeah, just my, everything's just my name. I think yep, I'm the only yep. person in the world with this weird name. Um, uh, I don't think there's anyone else because it's Dufty is a really weird name. It's, um, Tina, it's Tina Duffy. Tina Duffy. Uh, <laughs> At, at Twitter or at, <laughs> at Tina Duffy. Oh, um, I can't thank you enough for being here. Um, this has been just top to bottom phenomenal. Thank you so very much. Thanks, everyone, man. It's a pleasure. Yeah, everyone, you know, just support what Keenan Duffy is doing. And uh, thank you very much. Cheers. Follow Bothering the Band as well on all the social platforms so we can keep having fun like this. Adios.